0: This story contains a discussion of thoughts of suicide as well as very graphic content, including descriptions of multiple serious injuries and is not suitable for all listeners. Some stories, more than others, leave us with an inescapable question. How could somebody survive that? While reading Mauled, that was the question that replayed in our minds over and over again. The book details an account by survivor Jeremy Evans and is co-authored by Crosby Cotton, with journal entries by Jeremy's wife, Joyce. As the former editor of the Calgary Herald and an award-winning journalist whose writing has appeared on the pages of Sports Illustrated and Time, suffice it to say, Crosby knows a thing or two about an incredible story.
1: He told me some of his story, and uh, it was the most intriguing story I've heard in a long time. It's practically unbelievable.
0: Jeremy Evans endured the unthinkable, and yet it wasn't until meeting Crosby that he saw his ordeal as noteworthy. That's just the kind of guy Jeremy is. You'll hear from Jeremy, Crosby, and Joyce. But to get an even more detailed account, find a copy of Crosby and Jeremy's book, Mauled. It's a story of finding life and hope and love through brutality. And I hope you'll go check it out after hearing this episode and get some answers to how somebody survives the unsurvivable. I made a decision to survive. When you're in that survival mode. The The idea of dying wasn't in my head. I knew immediately it was the worst case scenario. I was in a fight for my life situation. Whenever
2: you walk out on these trails, you're in their house.
0: I'm Louisa Albanese and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable.
1: I saw the rope zip through the rappel ring and I couldn't do anything.
0: Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst case scenario happens to you.
2: There is no way we would find anybody alive.
0: In late August of 2017, 32-year-old Jeremy Evans of Calgary, Alberta, went out on a scouting trip to prepare for the opening day of ram hunting season. Jeremy is an avid outdoors person and nature lover, and he was determined that it would be his year to finally tag a ram. He went out that day with the anticipation of a kid the night before Christmas.
2: Hunting I look forward to it every year. I spend about two months every year out there running around in the bush like a wild man, going after deer, elk, moose, sheep. I'm a avid bull hunter.
1: Jeremy is absolutely passionate about the outdoors.
0: This is Crosby Cotton again, co-author of MALD. You'll hear a bit from Crosby throughout the episode.
1: His wife is a marine biologist. She was his first ever girlfriend. He was her first ever boyfriend. They've been with each other ever since they met in high school.
0: Here's Jeremy's wife,
3: Joyce. I actually grew up in a setting that wasn't very outdoorsy, and I suppose I just sort of found the love of the outdoors myself. Currently, we we have two children, and at this time, they're two and five. And we just kind of incorporate them in everything that we do with the outdoors. We don't really avoid activities because we have children. We just bring them.
0: Jeremy left his home around midnight to drive the three hours to where he'd park his truck while hunting. His plan was to be out in the bush for three nights.
2: It was a pretty early morning start. I got out to where I was planning on going sheep hunting about 3 a.m. I left the truck, loaded up my backpack and hopped on my mountain bike and made my way down the trail into where I go sheep hunting. That's about 12... To 15 kilometers in, back to where I normally set up base camp. So, hopped to my bike and start off down the trail. I'd say about five, six kilometers in, there's an outfitter's tent. There's normally an older Gen One sitting there drinking his morning coffee. They weren't there. I kept on going down the trail and passed by. Two other gentlemen, I rode past them on a mountain bike. Kind of gave me a weird look like, who's that? (laughs) Some strange guy riding through the bush with a bicycle. I then proceeded to ride into a far back canyon, which everybody nicknames the Crying Canyon. It's very steep and a hard place to reach. I like going back in there because I never used to see anybody and I'd see sheep and it's kind of one of my favorite places to go
0: jeremy has been going back into the crying canyon to hunt for about 17 years his strategy was to travel so deep into the bush that the day hunters who only venture a few kilometers in would scare the sheep right into his sights
2: there's a couple of drainages that i climbed through and i got to a spot where the trees kind of end on the mountainside, and i was sneaking through taking a few steps glassing the hillside I got to a spot where I noticed a bunch of sheep. I sat up there, elbows on my handlebars, looking across to the other side of the mountain there, and I noticed uh, the sheep. I was watching them. I was there for probably 10, 15 minutes. And I brought my binoculars down just to kind of reposition. As I did that, I noticed a little brown thing ran in front of me, probably about 10 feet away. I knew exactly what it was at the moment. I was like, oh, shit, it's a cub. I knew I was screwed. I had my backpack leaning against the frame of my bicycle, so I was reaching down in my backpack to grab my bear spray
0: jeremy was deep in bear country and even though he very much knew better he had neglected to clip his bear spray somewhere accessible he had only seconds to react and with his bear spray deep in his pack and his gun unloaded he knew he was in trouble
2: as i was reaching out my backpack i heard a little crack and i looked over my right shoulder and there was mama on a full charge less than four feet away i remember seeing her left front paw sticking out the whites of her eyes kind of rolled back, her mouth was open. I proceeded to grab the frame of my bicycle and just set it in front of her and grab my pack. Her head got tangled into the frame of the backpack and her paws got into the spokes and wheels of the bike. She turned and looked at me, and I immediately picked up my pack and started bashing over the head and pushing her back in the face. And She ended up grabbing a hold of the pack a few times, managed to pin my hands against the side of the frame of the pack and her teeth pierced through and was fighting her off the bike got shaken off and she backed away about 30 feet and i was backing up i was trying to get my gun off my backpack as i was doing that she was walking away and then she spun right around and came charging in
0: while grizzlies don't usually see humans as prey a mama bear will launch a defensive attack if she feels her cubs are threatened
2: I panicked, threw my backpack at her, and I decided to run up the mountainside as fast as I could and try to get around a tree and jump into a tree. I jumped off the ground into a spruce tree, tried getting up as high as I could. I got about six, seven feet up and she was right there underneath the tree. But as I was pulling myself up, my right leg was dangling low. She reached up with her paws, grabbed my leg, and pulled it down. And I remember looking right at her as she's lunging up and her teeth sinking in around my behind my knee. I was like, this is gonna hurt. At that time, I didn't feel any pain. She just grabbed a hold, ripped me right out of the tree. I hit the ground pretty hard, and I was beside a spruce tree, so I crawled underneath the branches and wrapped myself around the spruce tree, hoping that the spruce brow was able to protect me, and she was digging at me, and she was struggling, couldn't get a hold of me, Then she reached me with her mouth, grabbed me on the left side, picked me up, tossed me about six feet. I hit the ground pretty hard. It was just amazed by the power. At the time, I weighed 250 pounds. She picked me up and tossed me around like a rag doll. There's nothing I could do to stop her. Within a split second, she was on me. I was curled up in a ball, laying on my right side. And then her first bite, she grabbed me in the face. Her two front canines, one caught me just in the corner of the left eye by the nose, and then one on the other side of my eye. And she clamped down and just pulled. The whole side of my face—I can just feel everything crunching bones—and she was just pulling on it. And at that moment, I was just thinking, "This sucks. Like playing dead sucks. It's hard to—it's hard to lay there when someone's chewing on you." At that moment, I just said, "Screw this! I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go out fighting."
0: Many experts will advise playing dead during a grizzly attack. Some bears will back off once they feel the threat is eliminated, but it doesn't always work. Jeremy decided that his best chance of surviving was to fight back.
2: I rolled over on my back, started punching her with my right arm in the face, poking her eyeballs, grabbing her ears. She was snapping at my hand. I was sticking my fingers in her nose and she wasn't having none of it. She came down to bite me in the face again. As she come down to bite me, I punched my left hand into her mouth and I just remember feeling her tongue and my hand sliding all the way down her tongue. You can feel all the bumps and the like scars on it go, and it kind of felt like leather all the way down. And I shoved my fingers down the back of her throat and grabbed a hold of her tongue. She was making some horrible sounds, kind of threw up. At this point in time, I was laying on my back and her head was facing the left side and my hand was in her mouth. On the right side, her back legs were digging into my right side. Her claws were just digging in, and that really hurt. I was trying to push her off me, her hind end off. So I was pushing on her, just trying to push off And my hand slipped, and I hit the belly. I could tell it was the belly by the thinner hair and the skin. And I reached up and grabbed what I thought at the time was the balls. So I reached up, grabbed, twisted, and pulled. And at this time, my hand was still in her mouth, and I was holding on. She started squealing, almost like a pig squeal. You could definitely tell whatever I was doing was hurting her. And she just took off, running through the bush, running, just running up into the mountains. I got right up, straight up right away, and I dusted myself off and walked over to my backpack. I pulled out my cell phone, and the first thing I did was turn it on to the selfie, and I took a picture of my face. And in the picture, there's large chunks on my left side of my face are ripped out. Looks like my whole face is just hanging there. And so I was looking at that picture and looking at my face and could hardly make out <laughs> what was there, what wasn't. I was sitting there and pulled my pack up against me there, pulled my gun out. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, it's not that bad. I can still go look for a sheep. <laughs> I knew my injuries were bad. I didn't realize they were that bad. At that point in time, after the second round, all the tents were severing my right leg. There was a chunk missing out of my left side, a big chunk missing in my inner thigh, and my face was still somewhat intact. The picture's actually in the book. I was really ticked off at that moment because I was mad that this bear had to do this to me when I spent a lot of time training and I was ready to go. So I guess I was a little more of a shock and not really realizing how bad I was at that point in time.
0: This is an additional warning that what follows is a description of Jeremy's injuries that some might find difficult to listen to. If you prefer to skip it, fast forward to about the 18.30 time marker.
2: So as I'm sitting there loading up my gun, just contemplating what I should do, I had the gun butt on the ground and the barrel leaning against my left shoulder and had my left hand curled around it and was holding the clip in my right hand and I was pushing rounds into the clip. As I was doing that, all of a sudden, I just felt everything go numb. My hands dropped straight down. It sounded like ice breaking.
0: The bear was back. Jeremy hadn't seen her sneak up behind him, but now his head was in her mouth.
2: She grabbed me at, by the back of the head, and she was crushing the back of my skull. You can just hear it, just like everything sound like loud noise of the bones cracking. And uh, she then drug me backwards up the hillside. I just remember hearing her like heave and you can just hear her take a deep breath and her claws digging in and her just pulling me back. I'm not quite sure how far she tugged me but it was a little ways. I was kind of still sitting up on my butt with her teeth clamped around the back of my head and got to a spot and she stopped moving and I was leaning against her front legs, sitting up position. She then grabbed me with one of her claws coming the right side of my face, on the corner of my nose and mouth ripped all the way up towards my eye and ripped off a large chunk of the skin on the right side of my face, removing my ear. And when she was doing that, she started chewing on the back of my head, just gnawing on it like a dog bone just crunching away and, and she's also chewing on the side of my face and just I can feel her claws pulling everything off and then just thinking that this is the end nothing much I can do not really much was going through my head I just figured that this was it this is the way I was gonna go out it's just a weird feeling almost like uh, I don't know it was, was kind of like a calm feeling couldn't really feel anything I could just you could just hear things just crunching in your skull it still haunts me today she had a quite the awful smell to her kind of like horse manure and wet dog mixed together just when she was chewing on my face all the slobber you just feel it come down face her breath just reeked very she was very aggressive and extremely powerful so as i'm laying there and she's chewing on things she stopped and she repositioned her body and i fell my back fell and hit the ground and it felt like everything reattached. All of a sudden I got feeling again and I could move my arms. When I was looking up, I couldn't see much. My eyes at this point got pulled out. My left eye was hanging out of the socket. Facing down, my right eye was pulled into my skull. Actually, at this point, I didn't think I had a right eye. Everything I was seeing was extremely blurry. I was remember I was looking up and you could tell that there was like something dark over top of me. You can just see the lighter on the sides, and I reached up and grabbed again what I thought was balls with both hands, grabbed, started pulling, and I wrapped my legs around her head and neck, kind of locked him in and squeezed hard as I could. And whatever I was pulling on, I was trying to rip it off. And as I was doing that, she started bucking like a bronco and rolling around on the hillside, just squealing. I remember just tell she was in distress and she was defecating all over the mountain side throwing up and I could feel my back kind of start, I could feel it touching the grass and the brush. She's moving quite fast, so I let go and you can just hear her squealing and barking as she ran down the mountainside.
0: Jeremy's tactics had worked. He had successfully fought off a grizzly bear, but he couldn't be sure if she was gone for good. He knew his injuries were extensive and without proper vision, he began to crawl around looking for his gun.
2: I immediately crawled downhill, and I found the trail right away. And I crawled down the trail, and I ended up finding my, where my backpack was. I was panicking because I didn't know if she was going to come back again, and I found my gun right away, and I grabbed some shells, and then my hands were so messed up, and I couldn't see to be able to put them down the, into the chamber without the clip, so I was trying, and I couldn't get it. And I was looking around on the ground looking for my clip, and the first thing I picked up was my moustache and goatee, Picked that up, and then I found another chunk was my ear and some skin, and then found some other pieces of my head. Then I managed to find the clip. I immediately shoved it in the gun and fired off three shots right away at the first thing I saw that was dark. And as I'm sitting there, I got all these pieces of my face and and didn't know what to do. I pulled out my phone and started trying to text my wife, let her know that I screwed up and that I love her.
0: Jeremy knew his texts wouldn't send, but hoped Joyce would see them someday. He was 14 kilometers from his truck in an area he knew other people rarely visited. He figured he had no chance of making it out alive.
2: And I was sitting there debating on what I should do inside of my leg. There was a huge chunk missing. I couldn't stand up. On my left side, on the corner of my abdomen, it was all ripped open. And I am sitting there and I thought to myself that this was the end. I was gonna, just going to end it. There's no way I'm going to make it out alive. So I tried to, I loaded up my gun and was going to, I guess, finish myself off. It ended up, it didn't go off, the gun never went off. It was actually something pretty hard for me to admit, to talk about. It was a very difficult time and I'm sitting there thinking for a second, I guess this is a sign I better try to get out of here.
0: Jeremy still doesn't know why his gun didn't fire when he tried to end his own suffering. Just moments later, when he moved the barrel to the side, it went off with a deafening bang. Jeremy still felt his condition was hopeless, but he hoped he could lessen his wife's suffering by getting as close to the trailhead as he could so that his body would be found more quickly.
2: I knew I wasn't gonna make it out. I was in pretty rough shape. My goal was just to get further down the trail, where somebody's going to find me quicker so my wife didn't have to wait that long to find out what happened and... So I took the chunks of my head and I laid them on my scalp, put a sweater on, put it on upside down, put the neck piece around my head, opened it up and I laid all the pieces of my face on my head with the skin, the blood side down on top of my head, put all the pieces there, I folded the shirt over my head, And I took the sleeves of it and tied it around the back of my head, a knot, and then tied a knot in front of my head. My jaw was hanging down on the left side, everything, all the skin and muscle was removed. My jaw was just hanging down, so I, when I tied the knot, it helped hold my jaw back in place.
0: We'll be right back. If you're heading out in the snow this season, you probably know winter adventures greatly benefit from a little extra planning. Maybe you want to find snow-free trails for your weekend hike, or you're looking at a new backcountry skiing zone, or perhaps you just wanna have the trail map in your pocket at the resort. The good news is you can do all of this in one place with Gaia GPS Premium. It's a navigation app that includes more than 300 maps for every kind of adventure. Plus, you can take your maps offline so you'll always find your way, even without cell service. Right now, Gaia GPS Premium is 30% off for the holidays. Get it for yourself or gift it for your adventure buddies. It's the perfect last minute gift without worrying about going shopping or shipping. You get snow safety features like avalanche forecasts, slope angle shading, snow depth, and reports from snow stations. Plus get the maps for ski resorts all over the world and trails for Nordic skiing, snowshoeing, and fat biking. This 30% off deal is for Gaia GPS Premium with Outside Plus so you get all the goods from the outside network. That includes unlimited digital content from brands like Outside, Velo News, Ski, and Backpacker. This is your last chance to score holiday savings so don't miss it. Prices go up after December 24th. Find out more and get this deal at outsideonline.com slash Now let's get back to the show.
2: I then proceeded to try to stand up. I couldn't put any weight on my right leg. It just, it wouldn't hold. It just kept buckling. The first 10 feet, I probably fell a hundred times, just toppled. I managed to get up on my feet and the first 100 yards, the trail goes down the steep drainage into a bunch of rubble and down to a creek. I started to walk down that and I ended up losing my footing and I tumbled head over heels all the way down to the bottom. It was a couple hundred feet down into some big boulders. I hit the boulders pretty hard, and when I was laying there, I just couldn't move. I was in so much pain, and it was just a bad moment. I just was giving up.
0: Here's Crosby again. He lay there in the water,
1: and he decided that it was time to die, that he couldn't he couldn't go on.
2: But he put on music. Just so I could relax and go to sleep and when I pulled my phone, I couldn't tell what I was doing. I was just hitting the screen. And the song that came on was uh, it was Baby Shark. <laughs> it was a song that I played for my daughter when she was sick or having nightmares or bad dreams. That motivated him to move forward,
1: to get back up, and to motor on, or crawl on, in this
2: case. So I managed to get up, and I crawled up the drainage up the other side, and I remember trying to get up and crawl through the bush. It took a little bit, but I got to the next drainage and same thing there, I toppled down that and I was just wanting to make it just enough further to get to the main trail and from the main trail I wanted to get to the camp or just somewhere where somebody's gonna find me quicker and I got to the main trail and I was stumbling down that and at the whole time, my baby shark was playing on repeat.
1: Jeremy was making his way, I mean, more than 10 kilometers out of the woods, most of it crawling. He kept thinking about his six-month-old daughter. That motivated him tremendously to uh, survive.
0: Jeremy crawled through the thick brush to the Outfitters' Camp about nine kilometers away that he had passed earlier that same morning.
2: I couldn't see. Everything was really blurry and in order for me to look forward, I had to tilt my head almost all the way back because the way my eye was hanging out. I got down to where the camp was and I remember trying to look off the trail and trying to make noise, see if the guys can hear me and nobody was there.
0: Jeremy was devastated to find the camp where he had seen the two hunters deserted and remembers crying in frustration. But thoughts of his family propelled him on to make it just a bit further.
2: There was another drainage, a little creek. I ended up falling down that about 10 feet into the creek, face first into the creek, just covered in water, my head underneath the water. and I had all I could do to try to crawl up the other side, and I remember... Where that trail comes out of the trees, it meanders a bigger creek. Everything got washed out from a flood from a few years prior. So there was really no trail anymore. You just had to walk down the creek in the washed out area. And was crawling over logs and stumps. And I knew there was an outfitters camp. where well, there's usually always somebody there. They had two canvas tents set up, and I went and looked in both of them right away for somebody. But there was nobody there. There was no horses there. It looked like no one had been in there for a couple days. First thing I did was tear through the place looking for a radio or a sat phone, something to contact, help. And they had this big white cabinet that was locked up sitting on, on one of the tables and I couldn't get the lock off or open it up. My fingers didn't work and I just grabbed the corner of the cabinet, knocked on the ground and broke it open and only thing that came out was a bunch of canned food and a little black case. It looked like a, a phone so I opened it up and ended up being a, a pocket knife. So I'm sitting there, a little disappointed. Couldn't find no phone. Went through the other tent and nothing. In the big white cabin, when it hit the ground, there was a triangle-shaped can. And uh, I just remember I knew the shape of it. It was uh, like one of those ham cans with the spam in it. And it has a little twisty T thing that you stick in to roll it back. Well, (laughs) my fingers didn't work. So I grabbed another can and I bashed it open and... Grabbed a chunk of the ham and remember putting it through the side of my face because I didn't really, my jaw was hanging down. I was sticking it in the side of my mouth. And when I was in there, I was so tired, exhausted. Rolled out a sleeping bag and put it next to the fire. They had a stove in there, put it next to the stove, and I was going to just lay there and fall asleep. I was so exhausted. Rolled it out. I sat down at the table to write a note. Well, I was sitting there trying to write a note. There's blood dripping everywhere, and it was driving me bonkers. <laughs> on the table, there was some bounty sheets and toilet paper, so I grabbed that and started wrapping around my face and my hands and just to stop the blood from dripping on the table. I found a roll of athletics tape or vet wrap for horses what they use to tape up their ankles when they're hiking. So I found some of that and just started taping things together. I grabbed my jaw and folded the skin back up and as I was moving around, it was like it was dislocated, it clicked back into place. It felt so much better and I can actually talk. So I wrapped all the toilet paper and vet wrap up in my face to hold it together.
0: After taping up some of his injuries with the vet tape and paper towels, Jeremy wrote a note to the owner of the camp that read, quote, Sorry, was attacked by a bear. It's really bad was looking for a radio or sat phone. Sorry about the mess. I don't think I will make it. My wife is Joyce. Tell her I love her. I feel very weak. Lost too much blood. End quote.
2: While I was doing this, I found a bunch of juice boxes. So I was popping them out, squirting them in my mouth, and that gave me quite a lot of energy. Threw my gun in the tent, and there was one tetra pack left of the juice boxes. There's five. And I figured I'll have one for every mile I go to my truck. So I carried the juice boxes and I just sucked on one and I knew roughly how far away. And I was dropping them on the trail. At this time, my leg, my right leg was completely seized straight. I couldn't bend it at all couldn't move it, I was just kind of like dragging it. So the trail kind of meanders down quite a bit through the bush and crosses the creek a bunch more times.
0: Jeremy continued on from the Outfitters camp up a steep hill until he finally saw something he recognized. Two boulders that had become a familiar landmark to him over the years and that meant he was a mile from his truck.
2: As I'm looking down, I could see him when I was so happy And to see him and I had one juice box left. I knew from those rocks, it was the top of the hill and it was about a mile from my truck. So I was so happy. I sucked back the juice box and I kissed my hands and touched each rock. And I knew at that point in time, I was gonna make it. When I got to my truck, the first thing I did was push the mirror out of the way. I didn't want to see what it looked like. I opened up the door, sat in the driver's seat, ripped off the rear view mirror. And I remember starting up the truck When I was looking forward and through the windshield and I couldn't see the end of the hood, I rolled down the window and I looked outside the truck. I couldn't see the ground. All I I could see when I looked out the window of the truck was just dark green on the side with light in the middle, and I figured, heck, that must be the road, so I'll stick to the light. This road is about 16, 18 kilometers of really windy, twisty gravel road where half one side of the road just drops off down some steep embankments on the other side, just the side of the mountain.
0: A sign on the Panther River Road is posted that says, travel at your own risk, vehicle traffic not recommended.
2: So I ended up driving all the way down and I thought the whole time I was hitting everything. I always got down to the road and there's a bunch of little lodges along the way. I pulled into the first one, it was the Panther River Resort.
0: Jeremy navigated the switchbacks and winding dirt roads. He made it the 16 kilometers to the lodge at Panther River, a small family-owned lodge and outfitter. It had been about eight hours since the mauling.
2: I was walking up to the door. I noticed a small shadow of a child run away from the window. I opened up the door to the lodge. I could hear a little boy going, Grandma, someone's trying to play a prank on us. They were standing right there and I said no, I got mauled by a bear, I need some help. And I handed them my wallet, my phone and said please call my wife.
0: Jeremy's wife, Joyce, works as a marine biologist. But on the day Jeremy was hunting, she was on maternity leave and volunteering for a local nonprofit.
3: I was driving and I just got a a phone call and, and of course I wouldn't answer it when I was driving. And it just said no caller ID or private number or something. And for some reason, I just decided to answer it. And uh, it was an RCMP officer basically telling me that your husband got mauled by a grizzly bear. Nothing like this had ever happened to me before. And things were happening so fast. I was also driving, trying to find somewhere to pull over and park. And I barely had time to really comprehend and have it sink in at the time. It was just total shock.
2: They we were panicking, freaking out, didn't know what to do. And they asked me, <laughs> is there anything they could do? And I said, yeah, I need a, a glass of medium temperature water, no ice, and a straw. <laughs> so <laughs> we ran in the back to call 911 to try to get an ambulance or STARS.
0: STARS stands for Shock Trauma Air Rescue Service. It's a Canadian non-profit helicopter air ambulance organization that provides emergency care and transportation for critically ill and injured patients. They have several bases in Canada and one of them operates from Calgary.
2: The other one gave me the glass of water and I sucked that back and while I'm sitting there waiting to figure out what they were what was going to happen. I was dripping blood all over the floor, so I grabbed a towel and started cleaning it up, and the one lady was yelling at me, telling me I should just relax. Unbeknownst to me that there was a wedding that was happening later on that afternoon, and the party started to arrive. So the owner of the lodge got me out of the lodge, threw me in my truck, and drove me around the backside as she was trying to deal with the ambulance or STARS. And the three ladies that were working that day were running back and forth across the gravel in the parking lot. I was fairly really calm, I guess, and I was telling them, like, you guys need to, like, slow down. There's no need to run around. I'm fine. I'm just missing my face. Just relax. So I was sitting there in my truck in the passenger seat, and there was this 18-year-old girl sitting there and make just talking to me, just kind of making sure everything was all right, and I was just asking her how her day was and anything interesting. And I just remember she was... She would respond, but she would never look at me. It must have been pretty disturbing for her.
0: Amanda, the daughter of the owners of the lodge at Panther River, called Stars and 911. Stars says they were not able to come, but didn't provide a reason why. An ambulance was dispatched 100 kilometers away, but it became lost and after an hour turned back. Amanda knew Jeremy didn't have time to spare, so she called her dad, who owned and flew a helicopter, for help.
2: At one point in time, they came out and told me it would be about a half hour till the helicopter would arrive. So at that point in time, I got out of my truck, opened up the back door of my truck, and tried to pull my fishing rod, and I wanted to go do some fishing while waiting for the helicopter. There was a really good stream there for bull trout fishing, so I tried to get my rod out, and the owner of the lodge saw me doing this. She came running out and was just yelling at me, and I was like, if i got to wait for the helicopter, I might as well go do some fishing. And (laughs) they ended up convincing me to stay. and
3: I wasn't shocked in the slightest when
2: they told me that.
3: I remember the RCMP officer I spoke with that day, and they were like, yeah, he was just rattling off his Alberta health care number like nothing was wrong, and <laughs> I was like, yeah, that the about right.
0: At last, the helicopter arrived, and Amanda agreed to accompany Jeremy to help provide what care she could while her dad flew to the nearest hospital in Sundry, about 65 kilometers away.
1: The owners of Panther River Lodge, it's a rural outdoor lifestyle where the most important thing in life is being good neighbors and helping each other survive no matter what the challenge. Jeremy was so lucky to have so many people once he made it out of the woods, there to help him.
2: When we were flying, I was trying to look out the window, I know I couldn't see, but I was trying to see what it looked like as we we're flying over and every time I lean over the side, I get a poke in my side. And I would turn and look at Amanda, and as I turned and look, she would throw up the tarp at me. And I was like, what the heck are you doing? Every time I look over, she'd throw the tarp up. And I'd look out the window, and she'd poke me again. And she thought I was passing out, so she was trying to keep me awake. And every time I turned my head to look at her, I was squirting out blood. I was coughing, squirting a blood, so she was holding up the tarp to stop me from getting blood everywhere. And of course I couldn't hear, didn't have the earmuffs on, I was missing my ear and I couldn't tell what was going on. We got to Sundry, I remember seeing a bunch of shapes outside the helicopter and there was a bunch of people standing there. And they opened up the door to the back seat of the helicopter and I turned and looked and said hi. And the nurses and doctors are standing there started to they just went in full panic mode. They were trying to pull me out of the helicopter and at this point in time my right leg was up over one of the seats and it was straight and seized in place it couldn't bend it. So I tried I was trying to get my leg and they're trying to pull me out and Amanda was sitting there yelling at him, Leave him be he can get out on his own and as she was coming around the helicopter to help pull me out, one of the doctors tried cutting in behind the tail rotor. This style of helicopter had an open tail rotor, so she ended up diving underneath the helicopter and tackling the doctor before he walked in the tail rotor. I mean, they didn't know what to do. They were checking my wounds, and they were trying to take off my tourniquet on my head, and I was fighting them.
0: The staff at Sundry Hospital, which is now called Myron Thompson Hospital, were overwhelmed by Jeremy's injuries. They tried again to call STARS, who told them again that they were not available. So Jeremy was put in an ambulance to travel by road the 90 minutes to Calgary.
2: When I was laying down in the, in the gurney, the back of my head was all smashed open. And I couldn't lay my head down. It was excruciating pain, so they had a doctor hold my head. So when we got in the, when they moved to the ambulance, the doctor stayed holding my head the whole time together. I was rolling the ambulance, and one of the paramedics was in the back seat there with me, and they didn't know where to intubate me from because my mouth was missing. My nose is just hanging there by a the thread of skin, and I was breathing up in between my eyes and my forehead. That's where they see breath come out. I couldn't see what was going on. As soon as they laid me down, everything went black. Just the way my eyes were and that, I just... I couldn't see.
0: When Jeremy arrived to the Foothills Hospital in Calgary, the emergency room was under construction, so he had to be taken in through the front doors where his family was already waiting.
2: They saw me coming in with missing everything and everything, into the back right away. They asked me if I needed anything, and I said I wanted to say goodbye to my wife and my mom. I've never been put to sleep before for a surgery. I've never been in that situation. I was very afraid that I wasn't going to wake up from it. I was worried about I was going to Die in the operating table there. I had to say my goodbyes.
3: He got someone to throw a towel over his face, hey, because he didn't want me to see his face or what was kind of left of it at the time. And yeah, it was kind of bizarre to see. I could kind of see a little bit, and I kind of described it in my book. I just saw kind of his green eye floating there, and it it was uh, it was strange in that I could almost see bone, like. It was a little hard to comprehend, but I could tell it was him. He was there. I could see his eye, you know.
2: So my wife came back, and I told her I was sorry, and then I'm going to miss her, and then I tried, and it was a short, pretty brief, and then they wheeled me back in and pulled me through a bunch of x-rays and CAT scans, and I was I was pretty scared. They repositioned my head and had it in, like, blocks to hold it, and they fixed my eye so I could see a little bit, one of the doctors had green eyes. I just remember when she was leaning over, she had green eyes. And I told her, don't hold my hand, don't let me go, because I was pretty scared. So she stayed with me, pretty much filled the scans, explained everything that was going on. And when they brought me into the surgery room, I just remember their voice "Tell me everything's going to be all right. Just before they put me under, and they give me some really nasty stuff to drink, So I was trying to choke that down. And they put a mask over. They knocked me out, and I just remember this Australian guy who says, I'm down here at your feet, I got you, buddy, and he was rubbing my feet, and they pulled me out. I wasn't fully out. I still remember pretty much everything they did and could see. They shoved the breathing tube down my throat, and I hated that part, and then they first single guy came in and stitched up my hands, and then another guy came in and stitched up my right leg. He
1: was wrapped in uh, paper towels and veterinarian tape. And one of the surgeons said it was amazing that he had done uh, uh, battle triage to himself in the middle of the woods.
0: Jeremy isn't sure how he knew to wrap the dismembered parts of his face against the open flesh on his head. But those actions helped keep the tissue alive, allowing surgeons to reattach some of it. That first surgery lasted 13 hours and was the first of many. Jeremy was brought to the ICU where he was put in a medically induced sleep until later the next day.
2: I couldn't see anything. I could hardly hear. Everything was all swollen up. I remember my wife being there. One of my good friends was there. I was going in and out of nightmares. Every time I'd fall asleep, I'd wake up or be in a nightmare. And have the bear chewing on me, I was always scared. They put me in a private room because I was having such a hurt, terrible time with the nightmares and flashbacks.
3: Yeah, the PTSD and nightmares was difficult, especially at first at the hospital because I could not do anything for him to help.
2: We had to have somebody with me 24 seven just because they were so severe and every time I'd be in a flashback, I'd be thrashing. They'd try to hold me down and it'd make things worse because that's kind of what the bear did, pin me down. And so it took a little while. My sister ended up staying with me for the first week every night. After about 10 days, they tried to stand me up. You got to walk her out. The tenants on my right leg were severed. They tried to get me moving. when I was able to walk about five feet in the room and about 10 feet on the hall. And at this time, my wife wasn't there. She went to go get some food. She ended up coming back. And there I was in the hallway with a walker trying to walk. And she was, I remember she was quite happy to see that first time me being up. Everybody I talked to
1: said he should be dead, that nobody could survive what he could survive. Joyce is also just very, very determined. They love each other, although this story, I think, made them much, much stronger. When Jeremy was in hospital, they wrote love letters to each other and left them on the bedside, uh, talking about what they
2: meant to each other. During the hospital stay, I'd go walk around outside with some friends. I couldn't even go near a spruce tree, a bush, anything dark. I had to have somebody on either side of me. And we worked at it every day while I was in the hospital, able to move around. We went outside and we just kept working at it to get me more and more comfortable. I was in the hospital for five weeks, eight hours, and 23 minutes. <laughs> so the recovery's been a very long road the last five years. It's been a lot of rocky up and downs. After I was in the hospital, it was 48 hours after being out of the hospital. I was able to put pants on, went out, back to the area where I got mauled to the gate and met the ladies at the lodge and we did a little walk around and I did some hunting that day with my wife. We shot some birds hobbling around the bush and I was out of the hospital maybe a week and I went out with one of my friends, ended up shooting a whitetail doe and a bull elk that weekend. Right away I was back on my feet getting back out. So he
1: went back into the woods with a whole set of major criteria set down harshly by his wife. He had to have a satellite to telephone so that he could text anywhere in the world.
2: The first six months, I had a lot of nightmares, a lot of flashbacks. I started getting them during the day at work. I worked at a beef slaughterhouse at, at the time, and I went back to work right away. I was seven weeks after being mauled i went back to work and i remember one of the days walking around and my sense of smell came back and i smelled blood and that put me into a flashback where i was back on the scene so it was a very hard struggle from day one in the hospital i asked for help right away with that psychiatric help to help get over the nightmares or try to figure out how to recover from it after about a year i was diagnosed with ptsd the nightmares continued constantly Uh, every night three four of them a night uh, during the day
3: there was a period of time after about one and a half to two years later when i had a very heavy workload at my job at the time and his ptsd episodes were worse during this time and uh, i ended up just having a really tough time with this because of my workload and ended up having kind of a mental breakdown at work essentially and uh which is really bad but life kind of goes on right regardless of the issues you may have with your family and having to kind of still parent and and work is is rough
2: depending on how stressful the day was or would dictate how bad the nightmares were my wife would always be on edge she'd wake me up and she'd squeeze my feet to wake me up i had a daughter she was six months old when i got mauled when I'd fall asleep on the couch, I wasn't able to close my eyes. They looked like it opened. she'd always run over and poke me and wake me up and jump on me. And the one time I woke up and end up knocking her across the room being in the flashback, that, that really scared me. So it was a very hard struggle for quite a while. I was in therapy and my psychiatrist suggested I should try rapid acceleration treatment. Last year in April, I did a 45-minute session with that, and that night was the first night in four years that I was able to sleep seven, eight hours straight. It was extremely helpful for me. It was very hard to tell people what happened. There's lots of details in the book that I've never shared with anybody. So there's quite a few challenges. Uh, Now today, I, I feel pretty good about it. I've been back to the scene. Uh, A year after I was mauled, and then on the three-year anniversary, and then just this year on the fifth year anniversary, I went back to the scene. It's quite an emotional experience, and I'm happy that I'm able to do it and overcome that.
3: The thing that really, I think, changed for me after the incident is just, this sounds kind of maybe corny, but how life is so precious, and you really have to remember the important things in life, realizing the importance of family and the ones you love.
2: Family comes first. Be prepared for the unknown and the unexpected. Another big thing I learned is asking for psychiatric help is not a sign of weakness, but it's a, it's a strength.
1: I'm hoping that people read it and get the wow factor. That wow, you don't have to give up. That There's a lot of inner strength in everyone. All you have to try to do is access it.
0: episode of Out Alive was produced and written by me, Louisa Albanese, with writing and editing by Zoe Gates. Scoring and sound design was by Jason Patton. Thank you to Jeremy Evans, Joyce Evans, and Crosby Cotton for sharing your story with us. Their book is called Mauled, and you can find a link on our episode page at backpacker.com slash outalive. It really is quite a read. Thanks to listening to Out Alive, and if you have a backcountry survival story and you're interested in sharing, you can email me at outalive at this season of Out Alive is made possible by the members of Outside Plus. You can get 30% off for Gaia GPS Premium for a limited time with your membership, including offline access, snow safety features, and snow depth reports. Find out more at outsideonline.com podplus